Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Dr. Giles Warrington is head of department and senior lecturer in physical education and sports sciences at the University of Limerick. He researches chronobiology and sleep science, environmental physiology, and performance physiology in particular weight category sports, like jockeys, for example. He spent the previous decade in the School of Health and Human Performance at Dublin City University. Before that, he worked for 12 years at the National Coaching and Training Center as head of player and athlete services. Giles also worked for the British Olympic Association, where he was a sport and exercise physiologist at the British Olympic Medical Center. From 2002 to 2017, Giles was the performance physiologist and sports science advisor to the Olympic Council of Ireland and was a member of the Irish medical team for the Athens, Beijing, London, and Rio Olympic Games. He is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and a Sport Ireland Institute accredited performance physiologist. Giles has published 38 peer-reviewed journal articles and over 50 conference presentations and abstracts. He is wildly accomplished in his field and from my experience, also a genuinely good guy. We look forward to collaborating with Giles in the future and having this part of the Good Athlete family. Okay, so uh, I'm a, a sports scientist, a, a performance physiologist would be my background. Um, it was interesting, when, when I left school, I had no scientific background whatsoever, I needed no scientific qualifications, and I went and worked in a bank for three years, which I absolutely hated. So uh, it made me think long and hard about what I wanted to do in my life and my career, and it kept coming back to the word sport. Sport was kind of my passion, my life. And the more I researched around it, the more I kind of thought, you know, this sports science sounds really, really interesting. And even though I'd, I'd done no scientific background at all previously, uh, I, I started applying to universities as a mature student. And um, I, was, I was fortunate to go to a university in London, uh, St. Mary's University, which was a fantastic environment. Uh, it's quite a small, small place where I actually thrived. Just when I, when I was studying science for the medium of sport, it just captured my imagination. So I did my degree and I still wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do at the end of it. And one of my uh, college buddies who lived in the house next door to me, he, he, he said to me, did you see there was an advert for a job as a sports scientist in the uh, Olympic Medical Center in the UK? And I said, no, I didn't. And uh, I looked at it and the deadline was the following day. So I rushed an uh, 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 application together and I was just really lucky. I, I, I uh, got the post. And part of it was because when I was in university, I kind of volunteered for everything. And I did a load of coaching qualifications. And what they really liked was not only had I done sports science, but there's all this extracurricular activity, which was kind of part of that. So uh, I worked there for three years, had a fantastic opportunity, worked with some amazing Olympic athletes. And um, an, an opportunity came up in Ireland. I'd never been to Ireland. And... Um, it just looked a bit different uh, to, to, to be ahead of a department in, in the, what was called the National Coaching Training Centre, which is like the, the, the equivalent of a sports institute. So I applied for it and um, again got that job and came over and kind of the rest is history. So I've been in, been in Ireland since 1993. Um, so I, I worked there as head of player athlete services for 12 years. But alongside that, I worked with the Olympic Council of Ireland, which is our, our national federation for Olympic sport. 
And as part of that, I've been very fortunate to go to six Olympic Games as part of the, the medical team, which was you know going right back to Atlanta in uh, in the late 90s, 1996. Um, and also done work with the Institute of Sport and just had a, an opportunity to work with some just truly amazing athletes. And I suppose it got to a point when I just thought to myself, you know, I was interested in a career in academia and uh, an opportunity came to, to move to Dublin for a few years. So in 19, uh, sorry, 2005, I was appointed as a lecturer in uh, performance physiology in Dublin City University. And that was a bit of a, a, a draw, you know, was I going to leave this high performance environment, which I really loved? And I kind of looked at it and I said, you know, this is for me. And in some ways it was fortuitous because it allowed me to combine the two. So to be fulfilling an academic career, but also to be continuing to work in high performance sport, which is great. So I had a, I had a choice there. And where I previously worked at the National Coaching Training Centre was based in the University of Limerick. And then a, a position came up uh, in 2015 to move back to Limerick. Um, so I've kind of come home, done full circle. Yeah. So uh, as of last year, I, I took over as head of department in the, uh, the P and Sports Science Department. So that's kind of a, a whistle-stop tour of kind of where I'm at now. Well, uh, I think it's a fantastic background. It's one I'm sort of envious of. A little bit of travel, a little bit of sport, a little bit of science. And, and one thing that has always jumped out to me um, from, from our interaction and what I've, I've heard about you from our mutual friends is that you do have that balance of being able to uh, sort of be in the laboratory but also be on the front, right? I think we need more yeah. people like that. Tra translators, for lack of a better term, people who really get the behind-the-scenes stuff but can, but can turn it into something that can then be applied. Right. Yeah, I, I, call, I call myself a pracademic. I'm not an academic, I'm a practical academic. A pracademic, I love that. Uh, and, and, and on that note, what, what are some of the things, tell us more about your, your study. We can talk about the sleep or, or what, what's some of the practice that you've learned from? Yeah, so I suppose, um, obviously my, my research is very much around factors influencing human performance. Mostly in a sporting setting, but I've I've worked in kind of a, a range of domains, and it's quite I suppose my my research has been quite diverse. But I think as as time has progressed more and more, I've become more and more fascinated by sleep and chronobiology and sleep science. And I suppose my interest kind of initially started probably around the time of the uh, Sydney Olympics in 2000, where you know the team was having to go you know effectively travel for the duration of a day. And we were looking at how can we get an advantage out of this that we make sure that our athletes arrive as fresh as possible without the kind of the, the negative effects of travel fatigue and jet lag. And it really kind of stemmed from there. And they're just looking more and more. And you see athletes, they try every kind of potion and pill and strategy under the sun, but they often forget about the basics. And sleep is, is just fundamentally so important to everybody that you, you, you need sleep for normal function. And we know what happens when you don't sleep. You know, your your decision making, your cognitive function, your physiological restorative capacities are all radically impaired. And we know with studies from animals that if you if you preclude some some mammals from actually sleeping, their their immune system completely closes down and eventually they die. So which is really interesting. So uh, um, and, and you can look at classic examples of events, you know, things like Chernobyl, the, you know, the biggest nuclear disaster in the world. A lot of that is ascribed to uh, technical error due to sleep deprivation. And there's, there's countless examples of that. So, you know, it, it's just an area, it's an evolving area. There's quite a lot of work done in sleep with shift workers, the military, et cetera. 
And we know, for example, that incidence of various diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, are greater in shift workers. So there's obviously something happening there. If you're not getting enough sleep, it's actually affecting your 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 body balance, your homeostasis. So you know, then it, it logically transpires. If we look at athletes, it must be the same principles. You know, because you know, it's about it's about training, it's about recovery, it's about performance. If you if you train too hard, or more importantly, if you under recover, your performance is going to be impacted. You're going to get overtraining. You're going to get non-functional overreaching, which leads to this overtraining. And the only way you can treat overtraining is is rest. So you're suddenly saying to an athlete who trains six days a week, maybe two or three times a day, you now have to rest to get better and to get well. So it's about prevention. So sleep, it's free. There you go. There's the public service announcement right there. That's uh, I mean, it, it, it makes absolute complete sense. You mentioned the word homeostasis. We talk, especially in the strength and conditioning realm, uh, how every pretty much every process of the body, biological, psychological, etc., is uh, a process of stress and recover. And yeah. with, with, especially with hyper-motivated individuals, it's the recover that, that fails. So um, this is kind of a, a term that's been thrown around in our world a lot. It's, maybe it's not overtraining in the way that we think of it. It's under-resting, right? Correct. And I wonder, Correct. could you help us a little bit uh, understand more of what actually happens to the brain or, or some, of the, some of the functions of the body when we're fully sleep-deprived? Because I, I, I think people think that... You know, you almost get comfortable going on five hours of sleep. You get into a yeah. rhythm. You get good at dealing with it. But I don't think people yeah. realize that you can't actually be good at sleep deprivation. Well, I suppose, I suppose it's more I suppose, thinking about the functions of sleep. And we don't fully understand what they are. Um, but there's obviously, you know, different theories going back to the caveman, you know, the survival of the fittest, you know, energy conservation. Um, and obviously there's this, this, this uh, concept of restoration. And I think that's one that's very compelling. And there's also one uh, 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 about kind of neural plasticity as well. You know, the, the, the brain, the brain function is highly plastic, highly malleable to the environment. And that's probably re the reason why babies sleep for so long, because they need that in terms of the, the developmental processes. So we know that when you sleep, you know, memory function, um, it's a little bit like the brain being like a filing cabinet. You're, you're, you're kind of emptying out and clearing out the filing cabinet and sorting it. We know that during the different phases of sleep, so obviously the, the kind of the deep sleep, the slow wave sleep is very important in terms of restoration, in terms of, you know, physiological restoration. I think a mistake a lot of athletes and some coaches make is they think that it's during training itself then when adaptation takes place. But in fact, it's not. It's, you know, you, you train, you fatigue, and the adaptations occur in the recovery phase. And a lot of that's happening during sleep. And I suppose, uh, you know, I, I think of it, you know, I, I do a lot of the work I do with athletes is not just about training. It's about lifestyle. And that's been such a crucial piece. You know, if you think a, a top athlete, just for simple numeric purposes, maybe train four hours a day, that gives you 20 hours in the day to either get it right or get it wrong. And I suppose the, the, the analogy I like to use, it, it's a bit like an iceberg. The, the little bit above the water is your training and your competition. The big bit you don't see under the water, that's your lifestyle. And the question I always say to athletes is, which bit sunk the Titanic? Was it the big little bit at the top or the big bit you don't see? And it's the bit you don't see. So, you know, it, it may appear that an athlete is training quite normally, but if their lifestyle isn't right, maybe their nutrition isn't good, they're not sleeping well, they've got things on their mind, those are things that ultimately are going to impact on their performance and, and cause them to sink. I love that metaphor. 
I'm making a note of it right now because we're going to make a poster out of it and cite you. Okay. Um, well, the, the, the other one I think is kind of nice as well. If you think of a duck, if you see a duck on a pond, it looks like it's gliding along gracefully. If you've got a camera and put the camera so you could see under the water, the little legs are going 10 to the dozen. So it may seem like the athlete is just gliding along, but if things aren't right lifestyle-wise, maybe those little feet are having going 10 to the dozen and eventually the system doesn't work as effectively. I think that's really good stuff. Coach Nadal, will you make a note of that also? We got <laughs> to get that stuff down. It's funny. Uh, I don't know how active you are on social media, but uh, one thing that is sort of alarming to me is there's these Instagram presences, uh, you know, people who, you know, these strong looking people and um, with uh, hashtags like, uh, you know, essentially glamorizing the idea that they were up before everyone else and look how early it is and here's yeah, yeah. a 3 and 4 a.m. wake up call. And it is uh, what really concerns me, and this is what some of my study is about, the, the psychology of motivation and, and how to actually affect human behavior. Um, I, I'm not sure people recognize the damage they're doing. There's actually there, there's a really popular um, motivational video up on the internet, essentially, that says that's, that's, uh, that's calling out young people because they are, quote, not willing to give up sleep. You can't want it that bad if you're not willing to give yeah. up your sleep. And and it, the feedback loop that that would create is just absurd. You know, you all of a sudden a, a young motivated person is is copying the model that they're seeing online, and before Correct. you know it, they're not only uh, are they not achieving their goals in the way that you know Instagram or, or social media might suggest they would, but you, but like you mentioned with the uh, some of the the animal studies, they're getting sick, right? They're, yeah. they're actually getting there. There might be decreasing performance. Their relationships might be suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. like it's, I said, it's, like, it's almost like a badge of honor if you don't sleep, but it's crazy. It's amazing, isn't it? And I, and I think you know a lot of it's to do with modern society. And kind of the worst thing is is the is the mobile phone, the iPad. It's that blue light, you know. And people kind of use these things for like sleep apps. And most of these sleep apps don't work particularly well at all. But what you're doing is you're getting all this blue light going into the eye, which is actually giving that stimulus to be alert. You know, your 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 body responds to light effectively. You know, the um, the biological clock. You know, it's it's responding. Circadian rhythm is responding to light and dark. So, at the moment, you're going to be more alert than I am because you're kind of in daylight hours over there, whereas it, we're starting to get a little bit darker now, and that's obviously a factor. So, if people are going to bed and they're on iPads and whatever, that's affecting their performance. You know, so the simple strategies that can be done to improve sleep. One is sleep hygiene. Yeah. You know, your 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 bedroom should be a sanctuary. You know, it should be dark. It should be cool. It's for sleeping. It's not for watching TV. It's not for having meals. It's not for doing homework. It's about, you know, it's a sanctuary to help you sleep. So if you've got a cool, dark environment, that's actually going to promote sleep. Whereas if you're going in there and you're watching a program on a phone or an iPad or whatever, that's actually going to have an impact on your, your sleep and your sleep quality. So I think there's a lot of simple steps that can be done to actually improve sleep. But we know that people are sleeping less and less. You know, the average adult is probably sleeping certainly well under six hours a night now. You know, and if we say that, you know, the, the average that people always quote is around eight hours, it's highly, highly varied. But, you know, it's it seems to be less and less. And that's just a reflection of modern lifestyle. Yeah. And it, the averages are always interesting to me uh, because even the eight hour, you know, for some of the, the athletes that you have worked with and that we have worked with, um, they, they might be requiring more than eight hours, actually. You know, it's yeah. almost like the eight glasses of water <clears throat> per day idea. That's the, These are nice sort of anchors, sort of signposts along yeah. the way. But 
if, if you are if you have a heavy training day if you work out for four hours you are certainly going to be beyond the average uh with mm-hmm. water your hydration but also with your sleep um yeah. so to think you can get away with five or six is semi-absurd uh have you ever heard the well, name go ahead it's, it's in some ways you know the simplest way of doing it is can you wake up with, with without an alarm having a normal sleep and you're feeling restored that's telling you the kind of time time to sleep you 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 potentially need and it is highly individual and it, it is interesting as well when you look at um, there's some evidence to suggest the more um sleep you get in the early part of the night ideally before 12 o'clock the better because you yeah. tend to get a lot of your what they call the deep you know stage three and four the deep um slow wave sleep is more pronounced in the earlier sleep cycles mm-hmm. so therefore you know it's important you're getting those right so you're not going to bed really late uh, within that because obviously there's sleep duration is one thing but it's the sleep quality is critical because it's all very well saying oh i slept eight hours but if you slept eight hours and you you woke up 12 15 times and you know the quality of sleep is is, is kind of fragmented right it's it, that's not going to be good for you either sure and, and and if those hours were uh you didn't get to bed till two and, and stay in bed till 10 you know it, that's yeah that's, it affects you absolutely uh i don't know if is the name david dingus I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a he's a professor. He's a psych professor at Penn. Uh, okay. Super interesting guy. Definitely worth looking up. Uh, we'll share some stuff with you. But yeah, I saw him speak this summer, and he he was talking largely about what you had what you had just mentioned. Um, uh, the 24 hour world cycle that we are on. Um, you know what I mean? Like we are we're always going. You know, shift working, mm-hmm. truck driving. Uh, you yeah. know, someone somewhere is is in a nuclear near as is finger above the buttons in the nuclear reactor, uh, yeah. potentially sleep deprived. You know, this is it's amazing because we can track absolutely, um, you know, the degraded state of, of alertness, et cetera, et cetera, that we are knowingly putting people in. I'm not sure that we have an answer to it, but um, yeah, but that's where we are. And, and you mentioned well, in, yeah. interesting. We're, we're, we're doing some research um, with commercial airline pilots. That's known, absolutely. Yeah, the the, re, the research question we set ourselves is how tired is too tired. Hmm. So in other words, we know there's an element of fatigue um, due to the natures of the the, the flying time they do, um, and it's really so. What we're doing is we're doing a lot of simulations, and we're looking to task-based activities to look at the effects of fatigue on performance to actually address that. You know, because which is yeah. an interesting one. So a lot of the research is kind of done with long distance lorry drivers, those kind of individuals. But it's very different because if you think of a, a, a lorry driver on the road, you've got the cat's eyes on the road, you've got lights coming against you, you've got sound. If you're a transatlantic pilot and you're flying over the Atlantic in the middle of the night, it's like looking at a blank screen. And you know, if you if you looked at a blank TV screen, you know, eventually you're going to get tired. So. Blank screen, white noise. I mean, it's almost yeah. the perfect environment for, yeah. for dozing <laughs> off. Exactly, exactly. That's wild. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about the athletes you might be working with now or, or, or some of the cool stuff that's going on at UL because it really is a – for people who don't know, it, it is a hotbed for athletics in Ireland for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it, it is a fantastic campus. It's one of the, the finest campuses in the world, I think. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's it's beautiful green campus, phenomenal sports facilities. Um, so so on, on the campus, you know, we, we have a, a, a large scholarship program. We also have a professional rugby team based there. Uh, within Ireland, there's, 
there's four provinces and each province has a, 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 a team. So Munster is the team based in, 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 where we are. So literally just across from where my offices are is, is, the, is the Munster base. So they, you know, they have a large team, a very successful team. They've won the highest competition twice that you can, you can win the, the European Cup. Uh, a large proportion of the Irish team would come for that. So they're, they're actually playing at the weekend, the, the Irish team. So it's great having them on campus because it's, it's a bit like a living lab. Yep. So, you know, we'd have some collaborations going on with them, particularly at the academy level. And it's, you know, it's a great opportunity to create this link. So we have, we have them. We have um, the National Swimming Program. So it's based, they have two locations, one in Dublin, one in the University of Limerick. Mm-hmm. So we, we have athletes based there. Obviously, a, a sport in Ireland, uh, an indigenous sport, the Gaelic Games, you know, uh, hurling, Gaelic football, which are huge sports within Ireland. Um, and they are played elsewhere, but very much based around the community, the parish, kind of the, 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 kind of the local county team uh, as well. And that, I mean, that's a phenomenal event. And, you know, we, we'd have collegiate teams involved in that. So we, we'd have a wide range of sports based on the university campus. And then, uh, as I was saying to you before, I was very fortunate to work in Olympic sport for a long period of time, kind of developing the strategies, preparation strategies for the Olympic athletes, and, and then doing some in, involvement with the our Institute of Sport as well. Did you ever did you ever do any of the Gaelic games, by the way? Have you, have you, not have you not usually, I played a little bit, but you know, just, just, just to learn. But yeah. uh, no, I haven't. I mean, it's a highly skilled sports as well, particularly the hurling. Very, oh, yeah. very fast. Absolutely. Eye, eye-hand coordination. It's phenomenal. It, it's, it really is. It's, it's fast. It's tough. Uh, when I was over there playing football, um, I don't know if the name Seamus Hogan means anything, but he and I would run out to the fields and, and just... To puck a ball, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. right. And it was a blast. You, you, you see all the young kids around the place with their hurleys. You know, it's just it's almost ingrained. They learn, they learn that. But it's really interesting that the the um, the Gaelic sports are phenomenal for eye hand coordination, and you often see you know players. So so for example, some of the Gaelic footballers will go and play Aussie rules football in Australia, and just learning. And you, but you just see that the natural eye hand coordination ability is, is quite incredible. Like, for example, the the female version of hurling is camogie, and a lot of them are outstanding field hockey players as well because they, you know they just have that really amazing eye-hand coordination. Absolutely, uh, for people who've never seen it before, it it looks almost it looks almost like lacrosse for us. Uh, yeah. But instead of a net and cradling the ball, um, you're, you're balancing on a flat surface and kind of popping it up and and striking That's it. it. Yeah. So there'll be some similarities with 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 lacrosse. Very yeah. incredibly fast game as well. Mm-hmm. Fast and physical. And I, you mentioned one one of the things that I love. We we talked recently to a, a guy <laughs> named Nate Oxberger, who is um, captain of of one of the USA rugby teams. Great great guy. The uh, rugby is actually growing here a lot. Yeah. And in the way rugby works here sounds similar to what. Um, GAA is like over there in that like you it's almost like a community event you, you mentioned it might start at a parish usually you play for your father's team or whatever there's a lot of tradition yeah, and exactly same and principle social, yeah I think, I think it's very cool so what was <clears throat> what was your sport growing up then well you know I, I was never outstanding um, I played rugby um, I played cricket and and athletics two yeah. two and four hundred meters but I was never a world-breaking athlete by any means but I suppose I got I got much more of a kick out of just seeing working with athletes and seeing them achieve their potential. And you know, I've been very fortunate to work with some phenomenal athletes, you know. 
And um, for me, that's that's the biggest thing. So I was never an outstanding athlete myself, you know, competent, but certainly not 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 brilliant. I think apart from anything else, I don't think I had the the um, the dedication, the the focus to actually commit that time to to doing that. And I think it's that's something that people forget. They just think it's uh, an easy thing. But you think a lot of athletes, you know, they're spending an awful lot of time away from home, maybe. So, you know, I would have worked with, you know, athletes in variety of sports, slalom canoeists, for example. And one one slalom canoeist I worked with, you know, he when he was preparing for Olympic Games, he would spend nine months of the year away from home. Yeah. Which is just phenomenal. You know, so it's it's not it's not a fully glamorous life, you know, it's a, a lot of slog, particularly when you're dealing with things like injuries and et cetera. Yeah, I, so I, I, think, I, I admire them, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it looks like play, right? It looks like fun. But it, yeah. go, going back to the duck or the iceberg metaphor, all that goes into that, I mean, you can't yeah. even see it. And it, it certainly is a grind, which makes the kind of work that you're doing so important. Because there are things that I, I know it, myself as an athlete, like I, I know sort of just through the grapevine, I suppose, that sleep is important. But had I known the things I know now, when yeah. I was playing, I mean, I, like you said, my lifestyle would have just been a little bit different. Yeah, and, I, and it's fine. You know, I suppose I came into sleep, to sleep a little bit by accident, but it's just the more I read, the more I see the implications of it, the more fascinated I am by it. Yeah. And I suppose just the whole area of sports science that I'm involved in, you mentioned psychology. You know, I think traditionally sports science was single discipline, but it's now much a very much a multidisciplinary approach. Because you think of sleep, you know, it's psychological, it's physiological. There's all these things interlinked. And you, you can't, you know, effective support programs of athletes have to be multidisciplinary. Yep. There's no point in looking at it in isolation because that's not how the body works. You know, the, right. the human body is a complex biological system. Um, <laughs> the brain governs the body. And obviously, the, so the psychology and physiology, psychophysiological coming together. But then you've got the sociological biomechanical all these things so you it's impossible to look at it in isolation which was the traditional model so very much you know in our department for example we'd be looking at it from a multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary perspective that makes a lot of sense i i think yeah. every everything should all, all science should be considered that way you know I, you do have to sometimes take real <clears throat> deep digs on certain components but it yeah. but it is a component even you know as you and i are both obviously massive advocates of sleep as a performance aid or just a just a regular part of human function but the truth yeah. is you throw a few a wrench in some of those other things if your nutrition is terrible then uh, yeah. then your sleep is you know you may get that exactly right but you're still missing those pieces and your function will uh, fall to that level of and, and I think that you knock the nail on the head there it's getting the basics right you know let's take nutrition for example you know Athletes can be obsessed with supplements, potions, and pills when they just don't get the basics right, first of all. You know, even the simple food pyramid is so important. You know, they, they talk about food first, so natural food choices first. And uh, analogy that I, I, I like to use, there's a, a, a nutritionist called Greg Cox, and based in the Australian Institute of Sport, he talks about it as being uh, like a cake. So your nutrition is like your, your good natural nutrition is like the sponge on a cake. And supplements, if anything at all, are just the little sprinkles that go on the top. Right. Now, unfortunately, for a lot of athletes, the cake is reversed upside down. Mm -hmm. They have a poor, diet, poor lifestyle, so they try and prop it up with, with supplements. And you know, in a lot of cases, you probably don't necessarily need supplements. Right. And certainly for young, younger athletes, they really shouldn't be kind of going in, and they should be just focusing on natural food choices. 
And it's only once you've got everything else right where you're looking at the small margins, yep. then, then considerations elsewhere. But obviously you're, you're working with a, a dietitian or a sports nutritionist who's, who's cutting edge, who's giving you the information. You're not just kind of picking things off the shelf, which may be unregulated. That, you know? that is such good advice. I mean, and I hope any parent or coach or, or athlete listening to this hears that, right? Because yeah. uh, it, it is, that's the bedrock. Right, the supplementation it by definition and, and just the language you know that we've chosen to assign to it is supplemental, yeah. right? It is not yes. the essential. Right. And and for, you know for for most everyday athletes who maybe not elite athletes, why would they even be considering it? It's a lot of it's marketing, That's you know. Right. Right. It, it's it's not necessary. It's not necessary. You know, they, they consider it because the uh, the GNC or the health food store is right next to the uh, place that they get their coffee and they see big strong people on the packaging yeah. and that's why right yeah absolutely absolutely um all right you mentioned greg cox I, i'm kind of curious now about like uh who do you who do you sort of admire in the field whose research should we be looking at uh, um who do you look to to get ideas well again not so much on the on, well i i would obviously scan a whole range of research in the area but i think you know a lot of it's about the practical application as well and there's a sports site in the sky called you may have come across him Jan Lemur, yep, who does all absolutely. these infographics and i i think he's he's fantastic because what he's doing he's he's taking all that kind of hard science and he's distilling it into a language which is applicable there's little chunks and pieces that can be can be developed within that. Um, if if you're talking about people I admire, I suppose my mentor would be one of those. Um, there's a guy called Professor Craig Sharp, um, who who who's based in the UK. He was actually was professor of sports science in the university where I'm based now, University of Limerick, for a period of time. Craig has a really interesting background. He started off as a as a vet, and he specialised in elite elite uh, animals. So he worked in Kenya for a period of time. He was an athlete himself and a, a, and a coach. Um, he then studied human pathology. And um, then a, a very famous um, British coach, a guy called John Anderson, who would have coached a, a lot of uh, top endurance athletes, um, who, would be, who would have been a good friend of Craig's. Um, he was asking some questions kind of around physiology and training. And Craig you know, understood some of them, but wasn't sure on some of them. So he, he, he suddenly decided he was going to have a complete career change and moved into sports science. And Craig would have been the first appointed um, lecturer in sports science in the UK in, in the 70s, in the early 70s, in the University of Birmingham. Um, but just with his amazing background in, in terms of veterinary medicine, human pathology, physiology, and his coaching, it's just the way he can pull things together. And, you know, he can, he can turn the most um, complex theory into a simple idea in terms of application. And so I was very fortunate. The first job I had at the Olympic Center, Craig was the director and, you know, basically just total inspiration. So he, he was the guy that really guided and kind of influenced, well, still does, guides and influences me in terms of, of my thinking and approaches to, 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 to what's being done. That's very cool. Well, we'll have to yeah. look out for him for sure. Any big things you've got coming out on your end that we should try to get into? Uh, yeah, I suppose one of the things we're looking to do at the moment is we're trying to set up a multidisciplinary research center. So we're going to we're calling it a sport human performance research center. So it's going to be very much for like-minded practitioners, both within our department, the university, and wider, who are interested in the whole domain of sport and human performance. And it, you know, so it doesn't just purely restrict it to sport. So it could be human performance in similar domains. Right. So it's really just really, uh, I suppose, a, a multidisciplinary think tank. 
that we're really we're, we're really looking at just trying to get people together to collaborate to kind of develop research you know do some research projects so that's really where we're, we're going that's a big big piece for us at the moment that sounds very cool how do we get involved oh we can get you involved we, we want uh, international collaborators so anybody who can contribute to that so it's not a it's not a, a bricks and mortar center it's a virtual reality center Cool. And it's really just trying to get people working together this multidisciplinary approach to to to, to, to sports science. So you know we're, we're doing some interesting products. We've got a, a kind of a multidisciplinary project. We're working with the Irish Rugby Football Union, looking at in, injury surveillance. Yeah. So we're, we're we're particularly at the club game. We're just looking at the, the 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 level below kind of the professional game in terms of looking at monitoring injuries, causative factors, and trying to identify you know areas where we can prevent where we can we can educate as well around that so that would that would be a big one I, I do a lot of research in horse racing with jockeys as well so we have a big research team kind of working in that area and one area of that is around injury surveillance and concussion because con, uh, concussion is a big thing in horse racing wow. but also yeah. a lot of the work we've been doing is because jockeys it's a weight category sport but it's probably the extreme in terms of weight category sports the levels they have to get down to uh, are quite phenomenal so oh, i suppose heavy. it'd be um it would it would be in kilos so it's about 54 kilos so what's that i'm not sure what that is in pounds that, but it, 130 maybe or yeah, yeah less i'd say less so it, it's tip, wow yeah so it's typically you know your your average 13 or 14 year old schoolboy wouldn't be able to make the minimum weights wow. and it's it's kind of i suppose it, it's a it's a very top in the states it's very topical in kind of collegiate wrestling and a lot of the research has been is, is around wrestling because it's so big. But uh, I suppose what's unique about, say, horse racing is that they have to make weight virtually every day. And the season maybe lasts 10 to 12 months of the year. So it's not like you have a defined period where you weight cut. Right. These guys are having to stay at a drastically low they weight. For a long that level. Time. And, and, they, and they must train there, right? There is certainly a strength component. They, don't, they don't do a huge amount of training. And there's, a lot of it's based on tradition. So we're changing that that idea now so interestingly even things like a lot of a lot of the jockeys wouldn't wouldn't use things like running to regulate weight and stay fit because they think it puts on muscle mass so you then have to say to them well have you have you ever looked at a kenyan middle distance runner you know there's not a pick on them you know so there's there's a lot of um traditional ideas which are uh, which are based on you know tr just what's handed down rather than hard scientific facts so we have a, we have a multidisciplinary research team so we we have um currently three phd students working uh one looking at bone health and nutrition one looking at psychology and mental health and one looking at training within jockeys so we're kind of we're kind of looking at because within ireland horse racing is a huge sport mm -hmm. so you know one of the sports we're big for but it's really looking at the old, whole ideas of making weight how that affects your cognitive ability how that affects your physiological yeah. function how it affects your bone health you know that is a factor as well you know if, if you have your weight is down and you're you know your energy availability is limited that can affect your bones so you know which is which is a worry particularly if you're up on a horse going along at uh, you know 40 50 miles an hour and you're you know six eight feet up in the air and suddenly right. you fall that's a recipe for disaster absolutely and you mentioned the concussion thing that uh yeah. there's on a cellular level i'm sure the brain is not totally prepared to protect itself in a, in a yeah. nutrition deprived in a malnourished state right okay. Wow. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you never, yeah, so that's, never think about that's that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I've got some questions for you after we get off this, if that's okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Alex, you got some. Fire. 
<laughs> this yeah, this is this is lightning round. You ready for this? I'm gonna tag in Coach Nadalna for for the lightning round. First album and first concert. Okay, uh, first concert would have been Queen at Nebworth, 1986, which is pretty cool. Uh, got it. The first album I think was probably an ABBA album. I think. <laughs> the Scandinavian band. Let's like go back. That. I'm showing my age. <laughs> Um, if you had 30 minutes to work out and access to any exercise equipment you need, what would you do? Very, very easy. It would be simple. It would be out with nature. I'll be on a remote beach in the west of Ireland, sandy beach, barefoot, running on the beach. Simple as that. There you go. Uh, who would play you in a movie about your life? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I suppose when I was younger, I was told I looked a bit like Val Kilmer. That's when I had hair. But now, now that I've lost all the hair, I've got a lot older, I'd say Jason Strethens or something like that. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Advice from a leader to a future leader about to embark on a similar journey. So what would you tell someone that, that's going down a similar path? Oh, um, I would say seize every opportunity that comes to you, certainly at the beginning. Take advantage of every opportunity you can, um, extracurricular activity. Then obviously, as you become established, learn to say no from time to time. Um, I think find something you're passionate and passionate in and passionate in doing and live live with that and and, and be yourself as part of that I think love it uh, this last one is personal to you you've been to quite a few Olympic games which one was your favorite and why oh I'm probably a bit biased because because I'm because I'm English okay. London I have to say was a bit special even it though was, you were like right at home right it, it was good for it you still like yeah, that one the best? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, they're, they're all, in some ways, you know, they're all unique. They're all unique and there's special moments about it. But I think just in its totality, I just think London was just a, an amazing game. Awesome. All right. I really do appreciate you being with us today. You, you guys take care anyway. You do the same. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Talk to you. Good luck. This episode brought to you by Hand Armor Chalk, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting. They are also the official sponsor of the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association, a partner organization overseen by the Good Athlete Project. We would not support a product we didn't believe in. Check them out at Hand Armor Chalk on Twitter and Instagram.